Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Today, we're going to talk about Trump having known the dangers of coronavirus and opting to downplay it to the American people as well as a bombshell whistleblower complaint against the Trump administration. And my interview with the chairwoman of the House Oversight Committee in charge of the investigation against Louis DeJoy, who's now accused of committing campaign finance violations and whether he could be impeached as Postmaster General. I'm Brian Tyler Cohen, and you're listening to No Lie. So the top story this week, Trump knowingly downplayed coronavirus. And I know this might not feel like news because we all knew that he was downplaying coronavirus, When a deadly contagion was sweeping across the country and Trump was saying, like a miracle, it will disappear. (laughs) I I don't know about you, but that was just one little clue I picked up on that told me, hey, this guy might just be downplaying the threat of a horrible pandemic. But because we have the most ham-handed president in history, he basically made sure we'd all know just how willing he was to, to overtly lie. So Trump sat down for 18 different interviews with Washington Post associate editor Bob Woodward, which was apparently the bright idea of Jared Kushner. Someone pitched this idea to Jared that Bob Woodward, already famous for taking down a corrupt Republican president, would like to sit down with Donald Trump, another corrupt Republican president, for not one, not two, but 18 separate interviews. And Jared Kushner was like, yes. That's the judgment we're working with in the White House, by the way. I, I don't know about you, but that leaves me feeling plenty confident about the competence of this administration. So Trump sits down with Bob Woodward at the outset of the pandemic, and this is from their conversation on February 7th. And so what was uh, President Xi saying yesterday? Well, we were talking mostly about the, uh, the virus and... I think he's going to have it in good shape, but, you know, it's a very tricky situation. It's, uh, it, goes, it, it goes through air, Bob. That's always tougher than the touch. You know, the touch, you don't have to touch things, right? But the air, you just breathe the air. And that's how it's uh, passed. And so that's a very tricky one. That's a very delicate one. Uh, it's also more deadly than your, you know, your even your strenuous flus, you know, people don't realize we lose 25,000, 30,000 people a year here. Who, who would ever think that, right? I know. It's, I mean, much it's pretty forgotten. amazing. And uh, then I say, well, is that the same thing? For, this is uh, more right. deadly. This is 5 per, you know, this is 5% versus 1% and less than 1%. You know, so this is deadly stuff. So not only did Trump know how easily transmissible it was, He even goes on to explain how much deadlier it was than the flu. Like, he goes into specifics. He touches on the mortality rate of the flu versus coronavirus. And yet, publicly, the guy was still pretending that it was the same thing as the flu. On March 9th, a month after this interview, Trump tweeted, quote, So last year, 37,000 Americans died from the common flu. It averages between 27,000 and 70,000 per year. Nothing is shut down. Life and the economy go on. That was 
a full month after Trump already admitted that he knew coronavirus was deadlier than the flu, five times deadlier by his own admission. And yet he was still happily tweeting out misinformation because, you know, when it's not an esteemed Washington Post reporter, when it when it's just, you know, the lowly plebs who who take his tweets at face value, then sure, why not just tweet out outright lies? And it gets worse from there because in a subsequent interview with Woodward on March 19th, Trump said this. Now it's turning out it's not just old people, Bob, but just today and, and yesterday some startling facts came out. It's not just old, older yeah, exactly. young people to plenty of young people. So give me a moment of talking to somebody, going through this with Fauci or somebody who kind of uh, it caused a pivot in your mind, because it's clear just from what's in on the public record that you went through a pivot on this to, oh my God, the gravity is uh, almost inexplicable and unexplainable. Well, I think, Bob, really, to be honest with you... Sure, I want you to I be. wanted to... Uh, I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down. Yes, sir. Because I don't want to create a panic. I wanted to play it down. I still like playing it down. Meaning that Trump gave the entire game away. This wasn't him just failing to contain the virus, which already unto itself is is gross mismanagement, but that he was knowingly downplaying it with full awareness of the dangers. That while we were trying to contend with a virus that was highly transmissible, a virus that was multiple times more lethal than the flu, a virus that affects people of every age, Trump was pretending none of that was the case. Not only that, he was actually contradicting those things with his own statements. And so because that precious time in the beginning was wasted, literally wasted, with all of this Trump-inspired, unnecessary confusion and chaos, we missed the window to contain it. Like, other countries didn't. South Korea, Germany, New Zealand, Canada, they didn't screw around. They didn't get mired in bullshit fights for the sake of fighting. They tested, they contact traced, they produced PPE, they imposed strict stay-at-home orders, they mandated masks. There was no screeching about freedom or liberty or, or waving the flag to show the rest of the world how great we are, how, how proud we are to be Americans while we're contracting a lethal virus and dying. <laughs> they just got to work and contained it. And now they're back open and their kids are back in school. On September 11th, Germany had one death. South Korea had five. New Zealand had zero. Canada had zero. And the U.S. had over a thousand, putting us just a few away from the 200,000 deaths mark. The difference here is leadership. When Trump says he's doing a good job and that there's no way we could have done any better, all you have to do is look to literally any country in the world. Like, imagine if this was an Olympic swim meet, only instead of eight lanes, there are 180, and every country that dealt with coronavirus is participating. And we come in dead last, 180 out of 180. And then the U.S. coach, you know, Coach, uh, coach Donald Trump, does an interview with Bob Costas and says, you know, Bob, we swam perfectly. It would have been impossible to swim any better than we swam. All the other coaches are asking me how we did it. They've all come up to me and told me that they've never seen anything like it and they wish they could have swam as well as us. I would rate what we did a 10 out of 10. That is what is happening here. <laughs> like We don't have to pretend that this is a good result because every other country dealt with the same virus and they were all more successful. That means that objectively, what happened here 
is not a good result. And so what followed these recordings being released was, you know, the predictable stream of Republican mouthpieces explaining that he was totally right to do this, that he has some presidential duty to to feed the American people misinformation because he didn't want to cause any panic. And I just have to say, this is my absolute favorite excuse that Donald Trump didn't want to cause panic. Right. So and bear with me here. We're supposed to believe that the guy who's been shrieking about a hostile Antifa takeover where our borders are eliminated and migrant caravans sneak into the country to rape the women and sell drugs to our kids and people are being locked inside their homes and babies are indiscriminately executed after their mothers give birth and windmills are giving everyone cancer. We're supposed to believe that guy, Donald Trump, is trying to make sure we don't Panic? Are you kidding me? The guy who fomented literal protests against stay-at-home orders with tweets to liberate Michigan and Minnesota and Virginia? Yeah, if there's one thing Donald Trump is known for, it's instilling a sense of, of gentle calm. You can't listen to Trump speak without serenity washing over you. Yeah. You guys can't see me, but I'm stabbing myself in the eyeballs right now. So I, I want to touch on one more thing. and. That's Bob Woodward's culpability here. Some of the dialogue has centered around whether Woodward had a responsibility to release these recordings earlier. Like I said, these are recordings from February and March when Trump admitted to downplaying it. So maybe if Woodward released them earlier, Trump would have abandoned this whole bullshit strategy he used to downplay the virus. But instead, Woodward held on to these recordings because clearly he's using them to gin up interest for his book. So I think two things can be true here. First, Yes, this was opportunistic by Bob Woodward, because there does exist the possibility that if Trump's denialism was exposed for the scam that it was earlier, maybe he would have pivoted to, you know, acknowledging the danger of this pandemic, for starters. But the second thing is that I don't think it would have made a difference. And here's why I say that. Just about everyone with a pulse was already accusing Trump of downplaying it. Epidemiologists, And public health experts and politicians and activists and the rest of the world were all saying, hey, this thing is serious. People are dying. It's highly transmissible. You need to shut it down. And still Trump did nothing. So please, let's not kid ourselves into thinking that a recording was ever going to shame Donald Trump into altering his strategy. Especially consider the fact that now, even after those recordings have been released, he's still congregating people together at rallies. He's still refusing to wear masks. He's still demanding schools be reopened. It's happening right in front of us. He's proving that it doesn't matter when those recordings came out. Trump was never going to change. He proved that he was never going to be shamed into doing the right thing, even if recordings of his own words showing how full of shit he is undermine him. So is Woodward an opportunist? Yes. Would anything have changed if he released those recordings earlier? No. And I think that's the point here, right? The point is that nothing is going to make Trump change. Nothing's going to alter his behavior. Even being exposed as a fraud using his own words, even 200,000 dead Americans, even 8.5% unemployment, even 11 million Americans out of work, he's going to continue pretending this thing doesn't exist. He'll continue with the rallies, uh, with the demands that schools and businesses and restaurants reopen. It wouldn't matter if there were 200,000 deaths or two million deaths, because he doesn't care whether people live or die. So look, I, 
I don't care if you normally vote Democrat or Republican. I don't care what your usual litmus test issue is. If you want this virus to go away, the virus that's killing a thousand Americans every single day, the virus that's ravaging our economy and our jobs, then you only have one option on the ballot in November. Trump has made that abundantly clear. Next, I want to touch on a whistleblower complaint that was sent to the House Intel Committee. You might remember whistleblower complaints in that Trump's impeachment was launched from one. So the whistleblower here is the former Office of Intelligence and Analysis acting under Secretary Brian Murphy. And the complaint outlines a number of issues, all of which are centered on the overarching theme of changing intelligence to validate Trump's rhetoric. So the complaint alleges that senior White House and DHS officials modified intelligence assessments to match Trump's rhetoric against Antifa while minimizing the threat posed by objectively more dangerous white supremacists. It alleges that then-DHS Secretary Kirsten Nielsen inflated the number of suspected terrorist crossings at the southern border during her testimony to Congress in order to justify the construction of the border wall, despite being briefed by the whistleblower himself that those numbers weren't accurate. It alleged that DHS lied about levels of violence in Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador so that those places would seem like safe destinations to send migrants as part of Trump's immigration policy. And finally, Murphy details how he was ordered to stop providing intelligence reports on Russian election interference and to start reporting on activities pertaining to Iran and China. And the last point is the one that I want to focus on. The whistleblower complaint says that he was, quote, instructed to cease providing intelligence assessments on the threat of Russian interference in the United States and instead start reporting on interference activities by China and Iran. These instructions specifically originated from White House National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien. Mr. Murphy informed Acting DHS Secretary Mr. Wolf that he would not comply with these instructions, as doing so would put the country in substantial and specific danger, end quote. It goes on to say, quote, Murphy was told on July 8th that the intelligence notification should be held because it made the president look bad. Mr. Murphy objected, stating it would be improper to hold a vetted intelligence product for reasons for political embarrassment, and as a result, he was excluded from future meetings. And that's corroborated by the fact that administration officials have decided two months before the election to stop offering in-person briefings on Russian election meddling efforts, opting instead to only offer written briefings. But here's the thing. If this whistleblower complaint is valid, then those written briefings aren't reliable they're being altered to fit Trump's narrative. And, and by the way, that's not to say that China and Iran's activities aren't harmful, and they very well may be, but that's not why they're being highlighted. They're being highlighted because Trump has unilaterally decided to paint Biden as being pro-China and pro-Iran. And so because he only knows how to project, he's trying to shoehorn in this narrative that there's massive election interference on Biden's behalf, when in reality, the entire world knows that Russia did and still is interfering on Trump's behalf. And their activities are far-reaching and well-documented and leagues more insidious. Purposefully downplaying the more serious threat posed by Russia isn't only preventing us from taking measures to keep this country safe from an active cybersecurity attack, it's giving Putin tacit permission to keep doing it. And I don't think I have to explain why that's dangerous. And finally, think about the long-term danger to Americans that comes from prioritizing this president's personal political agenda over the actual national security of this country. It would effectively be a death knell for trust in our intelligence community. It would mean that any countries aligned with the president of a specific party basically have carte blanche to target and attack American citizens. And that's what's happening in real time. 
So this is a whistleblower complaint that should be taken seriously because call me old fashioned, but I guess I'm just of the mind that maybe we shouldn't pretend major threats against Americans don't exist just because we don't want Trump to throw a temper tantrum. Next up is my interview with the chairwoman of the House Oversight Committee, Carolyn Maloney. She's overseeing the investigation into Postmaster General Louis DeJoy and only days ago issued a subpoena for documents that he failed to deliver. This interview also comes at a time when DeJoy is in hot water for his possible involvement in a straw donor scheme, which is a campaign finance violation. So I think it goes without saying that this was a really good time to speak to the congresswoman. Okay, so today we have the chairwoman of the House Oversight Committee, Carolyn Maloney. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Brian, for inviting me. Uh, Today's a very special day for all New Yorkers. It's uh, 9-11, the attack, the terrorism attack, the worst on American soil, and the only time that innocent Americans were attacked for just waking up and going to work like you did today and I did today. It it was a very solemn event. They read all of the names of the almost 3,000 people who died on that day, and uh, we were honored with the presence of Vice President Biden and Jill Biden, who came to show their respect, and of course, all the families and supporters. We lost so many of our fire and our peace that day, and it's a day that we built a beautiful, really, tribute to remember them. I really appreciate you bringing that up. I'm from New Jersey. My whole family is from New Jersey and New York as well, so, so that means a lot. So let's, uh, let's jump into uh, Postmaster General Louis DeJoy. Uh, at the last DeJoy hearing, Congressman Jim Cooper had asked DeJoy if he paid back top executives uh, of his former company for contributing to Trump's campaign by giving them bonuses. And here's what he said. Mr. DeJoy, as a mega donor for the Trump campaign, you were picked along with Michael Cohen and Elliot Broidy, two men who have already pled guilty to felonies, to be the three deputy finance chairman of the Republican National Committee. Did you pay back several of your top executives for contributing to Trump's campaign by bonusing or rewarding them? That's an outrageous claim, sir, and I resent it. I'm just asking a question. The answer is no. Not only that he didn't, but that it's an outrageous claim and that he resents it. And yet now former employees of that company, New Breed Logistics, have come out and said that, in fact, they were encouraged to do exactly that, to donate to candidates and then reimburse through bonuses, which is a straw donor scheme. So how does your committee progress from here? Well, that's a very serious, serious uh, allegation. It's proven it's a felony. Uh, It's against the law. And uh, it is being investigated. I have requested information and documents from the Board of Governors and from him. And from others, uh, we are expecting these documents uh, next week. If not, we'll have to subpoena them. So it's under investigation, and, and it's uh, very, very serious. And who runs this investigation? Is, it, is Oversight conducting the investigation, or is it the Department of Justice? There are numerous investigations. I know that there is an Inspector General investigation from Post Office that is looking into his uh, financial dealings and possible conflicts of interest. Uh, because he had many investments and a a history of investing in the post office's competitors. There's always been a movement to try to privatize it, even though it's in our constitution and a pillar of our democracy. Uh, But uh, uh, that's out there, that investigation. Uh, I know that several Department of Justice officials from North Carolina, the AG there mentioned he may 
investigate it. Several have made comments. I, I don't know what, whether they're true or not. People are making these uh, comments. But one thing that's very, very uh, important that you raised in your questioning, Brian, is that at the hearing, he said, that's not true. I've never done that. I, it's not true at all. Well, if it is true, then that's lying under oath. Another very, very serious felony. So if, if DOJ is, is conducting an investigation, how do we trust Bill Barr's Department of Justice to actually faithfully conduct this probe? I wouldn't uh, trust them two inches. <laughs> right. I would trust uh, an AG from North Carolina, an AG from New York or New Jersey. or uh, Some have made statements. I don't know how true they are, but I do know the IG is looking into various allegations. And I think it's important to remember, too, that there's no statute of limitations for this in North Carolina. So is the point of these investigations, I mean, is something that's being taken into account here, the fact that they need to move quickly? Well, I, the investigations are separate, of course, from my, my position uh, that they, they do have to move quick, quickly, but they're independent and they're, they're conducting it on their own time frame. Uh, but I have questions of um, how he got appointed in the first place. We know that there was a, a search firm that was uh, hired, Re- Reynolds. They came forward with 50 names. His name wasn't on the list. So how in the world did he get appointed in the first place? And as you know, we started the hearing and looking into his activities because after a very short period, he was slowing down the mail. And this was across the country. Your state, California, Everywhere, every state had stories of slowing down the mail. In my area, they tell me it's five to six days late. Uh, they told me it was 13 days and late in uh, Virginia. So it's all around. So we wanted to know why is this happening? Of course, we called him into a hearing. He denied everything. This has never happened. It's not, it's not true. But then we received a document, an internal document, from workers at the post office uh, that uh, gave it to us. It was an internal document to brief him that showed that uh, all of this had slowed down within the first two months he was there, falling anywhere from six to eight points in productivity. Believe me, Brian, if he was in the private sector, he would have been out the door uh, immediately after this report surfaced. Why do you hire someone? You, you hire them to come in and make it better, certainly uh, build on what's there, not to come in and dismantle it. Out of the hearing, we had one big success. He promised he would no longer work to dismantle the post office. He would stop uh, picking up the blue post office boxes. He'd stop uh, denying overtime if it was needed to process the mail. And very importantly was the processing machine. These machines can process 30,000 pieces of mail in one hour. They were dis- disconnected, put in, thrown away, or put in, in, uh, in closets. We're trying to get them reinstated. Who in the world takes these type of management steps in the middle of a pandemic when so many people are demen- depending on their mail, particularly veterans, they get all their medications through the mail, seniors, business people, you name it, and then also so close to such an important election. So he said he would stop this activity until after the pandemic and after the election. That was a game. But we now want him to rebuild the damage he already caused and, and put it back the way it was before. Jumping back into the straw donor scheme, if it's discovered that, in fact, he had committed a campaign finance violation, what's the specific punishment 
it would be determined by a judge and a jury, I would assume. Uh, so I can't predict what they would um, do, but it would be a felony. It's, that's a very serious crime. And we've seen, you know, from other members of the of, of the, the Trump inner circle that who have also committed campaign finance violations that they've ended up in prison. So yes, that's true. I know states are suing DeJoy too. Does he have personal legal exposure in these situations? I really don't know. I'm trying to get the post office working and trying to pass a bill. Uh, when this was happening at the post office, the speaker took an unprecedented act and called us into session on a Saturday to pass a bill that I had put in to rectify his actions, which would have funded it at $25 billion, which is what the Board of Governors said was needed just to make them whole from, from the pandemic and also reverse the actions that he has taken. It passed overwhelmingly. We even picked up 26 uh, Republicans who voted with us. It's now in Mitch McConnell's desk waiting for a passage. He should get it to the floor and, and make sure that the post office is funded appropriately for this uh, election and always. And you know, what, what blows my mind about that is that the, the failure of the post office disproportionately impacts rural America. You know, they, 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 they're the ones who don't have Rite Aid and CVS on every corner to get their medications. They're the ones who rely on the post office to send livestock. They're the ones who, you know, might not have broadband access as, as readily available as, as everyone else in cities. And so they might not be able to pay their bills online. This, is, this has a disproportionate impact on the people that Mitch McConnell himself is serving. Well, I'd say you're absolutely correct. It's a very, very important point. And what's so interesting to me is that Republicans tend to represent more rural areas. You would think that they would be all over uh, and, and advocating and working very hard to get this through. I, I wish uh, we could have a vote in the Senate. I urge your listeners to call their senators, to urge Mitch McConnell to put it out for a vote. The, the post office is one of the few things mentioned in the responsibilities mentioned in the Constitution. It's a pillar of our democracy. It affects each and every one of us, and it especially affects rural America. I never understood this. You brought this point up because most Republicans represent rural areas. Now, one of the beauties of the post office, you can mail uh, something in, in your home state of New Jersey, and it, it, and it can go all the way to California for 55 seats or just be a birth card, right. card going, uh, going just a few blocks. So it's the same cost. If we, didn't, if we privatized the post office, the, the cost of mail would go up dramatically for rural America right. and hurt them. So really, it should be Republicans leading the fight to preserve the post office and to fund it appropriately and to depoliticize it. I have a bill in that we're marking up next week that would work to make the post office, a nonpartisan organization. It should be above politics. It serves Republicans, Democrats, everyone. And it merely says that a postmaster general and, and board members cannot engage in political activities. Mr. DeJoy and also Mr. Duncan, the chairman of the board, are both mega donors, I mean millions, to the Republican Party and to President Trump. And involved in all these party uh, activities. It should be a nonpartisan uh, people project. The post office belongs to everyone, to every American. It's an American institution. And I would say it's one of our most beloved institutions. 
certainly during a pandemic when you need it for your medications and it's uh, the only way you're getting your packages in your mail. Completely agree. So, so okay, I want to walk through this. In terms of getting rid of DeJoy, which is obviously a top priority. We know that the Board of Governors won't do it. They're, they're mostly Trump appointees, and four out of six of them are Republicans. He's not going to resign. Uh, he might face criminal exposure, but that legal process takes time. There is another option, and that is that DeJoy is a civil officer as, as Postmaster General. Civil officers are impeachable. If it's proven that you know, he's committed the criminal act of, of lying to Congress, like you said, is that grounds for impeachment? And is that action that you would commit to taking? Well, first, we have to take one step at a time. We began this investigation on the slowed mail. And then all of a sudden, other documents emerged. Not only that he was misleading us on that and saying he didn't know about it, when of course he was briefed that his activities had done this. But then we started getting documents from people who have uh, worked for him. Other allegations have come forward. Uh, allegations about uh, mishandling uh, his finances and uh, conflicts of interest in his finances. But all of this has to be proven. It's at this point just an allegation, a charge. So it is now in front of an IG. It may be in front of an AG in another state, uh, but we don't know that yet. No one has publicly said they've said they're interested. uh, They've asked for documents, but they haven't said that they have an official uh, investigation yet. And you have to see what happens and what comes out of it. And we have to go through the process and, and uh, receive the documents. At first, uh, he was not giving us documents. We wrote a 10-page letter asking for documents. And it was signed not only by me and as chair of oversight, but many, many other chairmen. And very unusual, the speaker and the Uh, Minority Leader Schumer both signed it. He did nothing. He didn't respond. We had the hearing. Uh, He was supposed to give us documents that coming Wednesday. Nothing came. Then on Friday, we gave him two more days. Nothing came. We had no other choice but to subpoena him. We had to wait 48 hours, notify everyone. The subpoena has been given. We started getting uh, documents this past Friday. We're expecting more documents. We haven't gotten all that we asked for, but at this point they are cooperating and and sending over documents. We have to analyze it. We have to work on it. We have to come forward with a report. And as I said, it's not only the oversight committee, several other other areas are looking at it. Uh, IGs and um, allegations of other independent groups and other official groups looking at, at mismanagement. People care deeply about the post office. They really do. The amount of a yeah. response, the amount of mail, um, it's headlines across this country documenting the slowed down mail. For what reason? That you hired a postmaster general that slowed it down? I, I'm telling you, I don't understand right. he got, how he got h- hired in the first place. And he shouldn't have been hired in the first place. To go back to that question, if it is shown, and I, I know the process is still playing out, if it is proven that, that there was misconduct, would impeachment be a possible avenue that the committee would, the committee in Congress, you know, more broadly would consider? We have to see what comes out of it. That, of course, is a, a joint uh, decision. It would be handled by the Judiciary Committee, which is our process, not the Oversight Committee. We're the investigatory mm-hmm. uh, committee, but the investigation will be completed. It will be shared with all members of Congress and, all, and the public, and we have to see what it is, what it says and go from there. 
if it is extremely serious, I, I expect that uh, uh, my colleague, Jerry Nadler, would take a very serious look at it, but that is his decision, and ultimately it's the speaker's decision. Ultimately, it's the decision of every member of Congress. Uh, when we moved to impeach the president, it, at first there was not uh, a lot of support for it, but after he went on national television and said that he would welcome the interference of a foreign government in our election, uh, that's an impeachable offense. Uh, it was after that right. action that I came out for impeachment and many, many other people did too. So it depends what comes out of this, uh, out of this report and we don't really know right now. There are a lot of allegations from uh, people that work for him, but we need to talk to them and we need to see the evidence. So one last question to kind of build on on what you said about subpoenaing documents. Now you've subpoenaed those documents because he he had failed to submit them. What if the delay is the point here? Like what if he knows he can stall and that you'll issue a subpoena and that has a new deadline where you have to wait X amount of hours and then that he can ultimately waste enough time that it'll be close enough to the election anyway? We'll we'll just, uh, we've moved pretty quickly, I would say, to get these documents, and we've moved pretty quickly with the legislation, and we've moved quickly with the oversight. Uh, we're having another hearing on, uh, on Monday in a subcommittee with another one of the members of the Board of Governors who is a Democrat. So we will be listening to that information. We'll be gathering information and, and moving forward. But there are many more questions than answers at this point. And uh, we have yeah. to give them the opportunity to respond to our request. And if they don't respond, then we can move to the seriousness of a subpoena. Yeah, well, I can just say, you know, a, a lot of the hopelessness that Americans feel stems from the issue of the post office in particular. You know, we we see someone as as obstinate as Louis DeJoy, and, and he's really just become the face of, of corruption in broad daylight. So, you know, sending trucks um, with no mail in them, creating massive delays on, on like we were saying before, prescription dr- drugs, dead livestock, late bills. You know, a, a lot of people are looking at your committee as our only vestige of hope against, of, against this corruption. So I, I know I speak for a lot of people in saying that I hope you are as aggressive as humanly possible when it comes to this issue. And it sounds like that's that you are. Well, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about it. And Let's continue talking. There are many other steps going forward, and we're continuing to get uh, information every day. I did call upon the Board of Governors to suspend his appointment pending the outcome of these investigations. Um, but they were appointed by Trump, and, and the chairman is also a mega donor, like his appointee, Mr. DeJoy. So right. it's very important, this legislation I put forward. We need to pass it. We need to take politics out of the post office and return it to the American people. That's really well said. Well, Congresswoman Maloney, thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time to speak with me. Well, thank you. I've, I've uh, listened to your program. It's always interesting, and uh, it's an honor to be on it. Some of my best friends have been on your program, so it's my honor to join them. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks again to Carolyn Maloney. So one last thing, uh, I have an announcement, and that is that I've partnered with Vote Save America. So over the next 50-something days until Election Day, I'm hoping to drive as many of you as humanly possible to votesaveamerica.com to take advantage of the voting tools that they offer. And I specifically sought them out because I think that they do an amazing job as a one-stop shop for all things voting. 
So votesaveamerica.com will help you check your registration status. It'll help you register to vote if you haven't registered already. It tells you how and where you can vote. And one of my favorite tools gives you recommendations on who to vote for. No matter where you live in the United States, you input your address and they'll show you your ballot along with voting recommendations for good progressive candidates. So with that said, the first date you have to know about is September 22nd, which is National Voter Registration Day. This is the day that you must be registered to vote by to ensure that there are no issues voting. If you haven't yet registered, go to votesaveamerica.com register. And just as important, even if you're already registered, you can verify your registration status at votesaveamerica.com verify. And with Republicans having taken a liking to kicking people off the voter rolls, do not assume that you're good to go because you voted in past elections. Don't take any chances here. It takes a minute. So please do your part and either register or verify your registration right now at votesaveamerica.com. That's it for this episode. Talk to you next week. You've been listening to No Lie with Brian Tyler Cohen, produced by Sam Graber, music by Wellesley, interviews captured and edited for YouTube and Facebook by Nicholas Nicotera, and recorded in Los Angeles, California. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your preferred podcast app. Feel free to leave a five-star rating and a review. And check out BrianTylerCohen.com for links to all of my other channels.